This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Welcome, everyone, to another Sunday of Dialogue uh, Gospel Study. We're so grateful to have you all here. Um, you know, I know it's a busy time of year, and a lot of you are probably traveling, but it's always, I know for me personally, this always feels like an oasis in, in the rest of my life to come and to discuss things and to be able to dive at a deeper level and, and sit with some of the harder aspects of the narratives that we're studying. Um, today, we're going to start off with an opening hymn. We'll be listening to David Archuleta's I Know He Lives. And that will be followed by an opening prayer by Kirsten Campbell. Kirsten lives in South Bend, Indiana, an area that and has been a professional volunteer for most of her life. She currently serves on the boards of Exponent and Mama Dragons. Her other passions are fabric, family, and food. So now for our opening hymn. All right, I'll pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful this morning, this afternoon to be together for this opportunity to gather virtually um, to learn from one another and expand our understanding to spread love and um, be together. We ask thee, Father, for increased love, increased compassion, and increased gratitude in our troubled world. We ask for increased strength that we might spread the pure love of Christ in our neighborhoods, our communities, and in our world at large. We ask for thy blessings to be with those who struggle and need thy love and care and inspire us as to how to help them. We pray for Linda today that her mind might be clear so that she can share the things that she has pondered and prepared so that we can um, be uplifted and learn from her and learn together. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you, Kirsten. That was just perfect. Lots of love, lots of compassion. What we're going for as we dig into the Old Testament. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, I'm gonna start out if, and and um, share my prepared words with you all. Um, and then we can open it up for discussion. So um, just for my own sense of mojo, just uh, let, let me talk on. So I'll start with a little background about myself. I was reared in the suburbs of Chicago and raised a believing Protestant Christian. Um, when I was in high school, a new family moved into our neighborhood and they had a daughter my age, and my high school best friend. Um, their family had just moved from Utah and they were LDS, the first um, Mormons I met. Um, back then in my Protestant church, we were using a, um, a book called, So What's the Difference? That um, went through all the, the various world religions to explain why they weren't quite enough compared to what uh, mainstream Protestant Christianity was. And if, when we got to the chapter on Buddhists, if I'd known any Buddhists, I would have invited them to come and explain from their point of view how things were. But we were pretty uh, 
bland Midwestern suburb. But my friend Debbie the Mormon was an interesting uh, out of spice. So when we got to that chapter on the sects, um, I invited the missionaries to come and give their first um, lesson, I guess it was then, with flannel boards and all, to my Sunday school class. So that's just what I thought that would be a good exposure to let people speak for themselves. Um, my friend Debbie had been invited to a birthday party by one of the boys she didn't know very well in the new ward that she had moved into. So she asked me to go with her to this birthday party. And we decided beforehand that if we had a good time, we'd go to her church the next morning. And if we didn't have a good time, we'd go to my church the next morning. We had a good time at the party. And uh, the Lord continues to work in mysterious ways in my life. And, and that was one of them. I started the missionary lessons around the time I attended Christian summer camps in the late 1960s, where I learned social justice songs like, go down Moses and we shall overcome and oh freedom, oh freedom, oh freedom over me. Woo. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free and be free. The wise uh, young elders first asked me, would you like to know more about Christ? I enthousi enthusiastically answered, yes. I was energized by the teachings of early LDS church leaders who promised, as Joseph Smith did, the inquiry is frequently made of me, wherein do you differ from others in your religious views? In reality and essence, we do not differ so far in our religious views, but that we could all drink into one principle of love. One of the grand fundamental principles of Mormonism is to receive truth, let it come from whence it may. So I was glad to hear that echo of uh, drink into the one principle of love in Kirsten's prayer this morning. Um, that appetite for truth from any source uh, was what I thought I was embracing, and that was and is my spiritual quest. Over the decades, I have wrestled with the LDS mantra, I know the church is true. Early on, that's how I phrased it, like all the other members of the church around me. But after a few decades, which I think is a normal path of spiritual maturity, I became uncertain about what those words actually meant. For a church that claims it isn't creedal, that phrase feels to me like it has become one. I have fed and nourished my spiritual life and have, confirmed, have had confirmed to me that God did then and does still want me here in this church, being my full authentic self, my Jesus-loving self, my truth-seeking self. My son Chase gave me the beloved moniker some years ago of being a committed misfit. And so here I am. After high school, I went to Wellesley College in Massachusetts and attended the university wards in Cambridge. I didn't realize that my first associations with LDS adults was atypical. In our building on Longfellow Park, I was nourished by the good word of God by such notable role models as Jamie Lyon, Richard and Claudia Bushman, Chase and Greta Peterson, Truman Madsen, Clayton Christensen, Laurel Ulrich, Tony Kimball, and many more. 
Tony Kimball was my first real LDS Sunday school teacher. He introduced me to the writings of C.S. Lewis, a perfect segue for my Christ-loving soul. Another influence was Judy Dushku, who I overheard one evening when she was in an institute class. A professor of politics at Suffolk University, I heard her say, my colleagues ask me, how can you be a Mormon and a feminist? Judy's reply was, of course I'm a feminist. It's because I'm a Mormon. That bold clarity, that evidence of the moral and spiritual equality of all of God's children was exactly what I embraced about the gospel, and I still do. I stayed in the university wards in Cambridge even after I met and married my husband, Chris. We have three wonderful adult children who have fabulous spouses, and they have provided us with 11 extraordinary grandchildren, the youngest of whom is uh, Helen Iring Kimball, born on April 25th of this year. I have deep roots since 1974 with Exponent 2 and with Midwest Pilgrims. And I was the co-editor in chief of Segula, where I am now their art director. And I am also a member of the Dialogue Foundation board. Okay, now I'm gonna turn to our uh, text for today. It's Second Kings chapters two through seven. I found these chapters disturbing, perplexing, foreign and inspiring. When approaching an ancient text, I try, like the scripture expert Dan McClellan recommends, to get some kind of insight into the original audience and how they might have understood it. These are chapters, I believe, that are designed to persuade readers and position Elisha that uh, he was the legitimate heir to the liberal and priestly mantle from the prophet Elijah. Elijah, who was originally a farmer, left his home, farm, and family to become the most loyal follower, acolyte, disciple of Elijah, part of the supportive band of sons of the prophets. Knowing that Elijah was soon to depart this life, loyal Elisha asked if he could have a double portion of Elijah's prophetic powers. This apparently wasn't as greedy as one might think. This was a common inheritance to a firstborn son which Elijah as Elijah's most loyal and avid disciple essentially was. As Elijah, the prophet, rides a chariot into heaven without dying, his literal mantle falls off of him. Elisha picks it up. Soon Elisha is performing miracles with it and without it. In fact, if you count them, the written account lists eight miracles performed by Elijah and 16 performed by Elisha. So a double portion indeed. First, I'm going to address one of the strangest episodes in this text. That would be 2 Kings 2, verses 23 and 24, which read, And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and he was going up by the way. There came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear 42 children of them, or essentially eviscerated 42 of these children. Ugh. People have lots of ways of interpreting what seems to me a vicious, spiteful, immature, horrific punishment for young men, not children, who harassed a foreigner and a stranger. I have read commentaries that suggest the bald head comment 
must have been might have been a reference to Elijah, who possibly had shorn his hair because of his prophetic calling. It's unclear to me, and certainly doesn't improve the story any. Um, and the go up, go up chant could also be a reference to Elijah going up into heaven, like uh, that, that these taunters were asking Elisha to do the same and just get up out of here and go on to heaven. God and Elisha may not have appreciated the sassy back talk, but do snarky dudes need to get shredded by she bears? I can't attach to it any justification for this kind of literal overkill. Apparently, some people read it as a cautionary tale to always follow the prophet or else. My take is on this episode is just no. To me, this smells like barbarity. I do not worship a God who intentionally would sick she bears on sassy pants youths or kill all Egyptian firstborn sons for that matter. Just no. I get my ways are not your ways, that warning, but I just can't attach to this segment at all. God will have to explain it to me in the next life because this does not look like the work of a loving God to me. I believe that the frequent wrath and smiting ascribed to Jehovah make him sound like an undisciplined toddler with a personality disorder. This is not the God I know and worship. I have read enough C.S. Lewis to know that when Aslan roars, he means business. I respect that. I bow before that, but I won't blame God for this particular episode. The other miracles Elijah performs are a bit obscure unless you're well-versed in the geopolitics of the ancient Middle East, and they are worth your time to examine. One of my favorites here is in 2 Kings 4, and this is how it goes. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. I find the opening of this episode fascinating. A widowed woman with heavy debts fears that her sons will be taken into bondage to pay creditors. When she approaches Elisha, she positions herself by noting her husband's loyal service to Elijah and desperately asks him to help her and her sons. At least in this record, Elisha doesn't refer back to her husband. He says, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? She is frank with him. She admits, I have nothing, nothing but this little jar of olive oil. 
Elisha sees and accepts her emptiness. He invites her to get much, much more emptiness or empty jars from her friends and neighbors. Then miraculously, oil flows into her pot and every pot they have collected until every empty space is filled. Elisha advises her to sell the new oil to pay her debt. She does as in, and is free of her creditor. Elisha blesses and accepts her emptiness. He, acting on God's behalf, blesses her emptiness, and by his instruction, she participates in and receives abundance. I can practically hear Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I love the idea that I can take my nothing but and God will make it sufficient or more. I find that a beautiful nugget and a rich lesson. As you read through these other Old Testament miracles, you'll find many that foreshadow the miracles of Jesus. In today's passage alone, we have a restoration to life, living water, abundance rather than scarcity, and ascension into heaven, and more, my upbringing and my study of the New Testament make the parallels practically jump out at me. Maybe I am just used to wearing Jesus glasses. I have made a practice of finding the divine everywhere. I mentioned to Chris that I always assumed that when the Old Testament prophets were pointing towards the future or prophesying events, Christ was typically the fulfillment of those. He lives, communicates with us, and answers our prayers in myriad ways. He loves us beyond our ability to comprehend. The scriptures and the Holy Ghost direct and inspire us. I understand that most LDS readers' first assumption is the prophets are essential guides to believers, mouthpieces of God. Prophet is the priesthood position restored through Joseph Smith, and we are frequently reminded to follow the prophet. He knows the way. I'm not going to sing that lyric. One of the greatest revelations in my life occurred when I first learned about the Myers-Briggs personality test way back in the 80s, I think. I was persuaded that there really are people who live most comfortably with strict definitions, precise rules, and firm boundaries, just as there really are people who thrive with fluidity, nuance, and are more comfortable with a lot more uncertainty. While I don't remember what my particular Myers-Briggs category is, I, knew I, am, I know I am spiritually healthier when I admit how uncertain I am about many things. That's what faith is for. I embrace the phrase, what I do understand I love, what I don't understand I trust. I'm still a bit confused about how some people insist on strict definitions and absolute interpretations of the scriptures and the conclusions they draw from them. I lean on my Myers-Briggs insights to hold space for them too. Sounds like a win-win for all of us, although I'm not sure those who need the security of certainty would agree. My job, as I understand from Christ, is to work out and develop all of my love muscles if you could see my spirit body, you could see just how buff I'm getting. I personally don't immediately glean out of those passages in 2 Kings lessons on following the prophets. 
I see Old Testament prophets as pointing to Christ, our Savior. To borrow a lyric from Peggy March, I will follow him, follow him wherever he may go. Prophets are valuable. They teach, guide, and can channel God's wise advice and share it with believers. I appreciate and respect prophets. I even, as the song goes, thank God for the prophet. But they aren't divine. This is what my faith tells me. When I shake a prophet's hand, I'm going to go ahead and wash my hand afterwards and not save the water in a baggie out of reverence and devotion, which is an anecdote I really heard in church once. I just don't get that mindset. It kind of creeps me out. Really, people, who is your God? Another segment from this scripture block is in 2 Kings 6. The enemies are numerous and are threatening the city. And the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth. Behold, uh, and host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what, how shall we do? What, what can we do? What's, what's going on? I am clueless. And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. I love that description. I believe that description. Uh Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Yesterday, I read an interesting uh, pro-private prayer op-ed in the New York Times by the sassy Christian writer Anne Lamott. In it, she says, when I pray for all the places where we see Christ crucified, Ukraine, India, the refugee camps, I see in my heart and in the newspaper the goodness draws near through UNICEF, Doctors Without Borders, volunteers, through motley old us. I do not understand much about string theory, but I do know we are vibrations all the time. Between the tiny strings is space in which change can happen. The strings are infinitesimal, the space between nearly limitless. Prayer says to that space, I am a tiny, helpless, needy, worried, I am tiny, helpless, needy, and worried, but there's nothing I can do except send my love into that which is so much bigger than me. How do people like me who believe entirely in science and reason also believe that prayer can heal and restore? Well, I've seen it happen a thousand times in my own inconsequential life. God seems like a total show off to me, if perhaps unnecessarily cryptic. I wake up praying. It helps me not fixate on who I am, but on whose I am God's adorable, aging, self-centered, spaced out beloved. I pray to be a good servant because I've learned that this is the path of happiness. I pray for my family and all my sick friends that they may have days of grace and healing. And I end my prayers, make me ever mindful of the needs of the poor. When I am at my most rattled or in victimized self-righteousness, I go for walks. Another way to put my feet to prayer. I pray for help. And in some dimension outside of my mind or language, I relax. I can breathe again. I say, thank you. 
I say thank you for the same flowers and trees and ferns and cactuses I pass every day. I say thank you, thank you, thank you. In my ruminations on these passages from 2 Kings, I come away with renewed gratitude for sensing and seeing between those strings that connect us, that they that be with us are more than they be with them. I'm grateful to know that God through all of his servants on this planet can make abundance out of scarcity and emptiness. I praise God for giving each of us from primary taught to profit access to the everlasting and boundless love of God and the instruction to put all of that expansiveness to sanctified use. I'm going to close this part of our study, but with a poem that I wrote, which was published in the Exponent way back in 2000. It explores the complexity, the paradox, and my ultimate source of hope and healing. It's called Miracles. How is it miracles work? Are they the giddy industry of a membrane angel world around us? Parking spaces, lost keys, kind words and casseroles impeccably timed. What about those snooker stunts, Moses before Pharaoh, abracadabras with wands and water, royal wizards duplicate them all. All but that last one, the one with the dead sons. This was a miracle. This brutal showstopper? No, please, spare me. In this red system where horror reigns, I cannot tell the difference. The casserole comes, but the limb is lost. The missing key, the missing key appears, but the spouse leaves. I have lost my bearings. I do not understand the musculature of the miraculous. Perhaps... I should embrace them all and bow my head before the dead now living son who spares me. And these are my thoughts and I leave them with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And now we can open up to um, whatever discussion you want or questions or commentary. Esther, I'll leave it to you to coordinate that. Thank you, Linda. That was a really beautiful and, and vulnerable exploration of the, the text. Um, it's somewhat of a summary of what you just said, but Joseph Benyon commented, certainty is the enemy of faith and wonder. And I really love that. Okay. I'm... I mean, I, I, I'm. Oh, he's speechless. No, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to step my foot into him. Uh -oh. <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting to take this part of the scriptures, part of the Old Testament, into an uncertainty direction. I, I mean, most commonly, the, the, Miracle stories are are used to pump up the prophet and feed our desire for certainty for um, everything working, and that's the that's the most common way to approach this. And by by 
basically rejecting the 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 mauling bears story um you move us in the direction of uncertainty of uh discovery of of what more might be here um in terms of miracles that are not automatic that are not mechanical that are not um pre specified i i mean i like that i celebrate that but i think it 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 feeds a different audience that is if you came today looking for the message of certainty and everything will work out i mean you just failed us but is, it, is that my team here <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you remind me that you and I have had conversations about how I was surprised that, well, when I read the Old Testament stories about the prophets, I read the New Testament and see them fulfilled. And I see the echoes from the Old Testament into the New. And that was, I assume, one of the objectives of the gospel writers. But you have told me that the, the the propping up of prophet as a vital priesthood role continuing throughout throughout the ages is the go-to first interpretation of Latter-day Saints. Is, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I remember feeling a little uh, baffled, <laughs> kind of, oh no because that was just the other day we had this conversation. It's like I've been in here, uh, you know, I was uh, converted in uh, 1969, I think. <laughs> um, so that's a long time to not have gotten that point, but I still like my take on it. But you told me about the wisdom of your, uh, uh, is it Isidore Tversky? Your, your, um, Jewish studies professor at Harvard. And uh, why don't you share that brilliant quote if you still have it? Well, it's so many years ago, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, I, but, but the line that has stuck with me, he said, um, he, he was talking about what does scripture mean? What is scripture? And, uh, and he said, my, my take on it is that a, a, um, a, a profound work of, uh, literature has six or eight layers of meaning and interpretation, but that scripture has an infinite number of layers and we can keep working with them. I, I like that view because it, it makes room for all of us. <laughs> I'm all for that. Both of your perspectives are right there in the text, I think. Um, that bear story, it's a common expression uh, among Jewish scholars that if you're talking about a cock and bull story, you use the expression, neither bears nor forest. Interesting. It's not accepted. It's just not, not accepted. And <coughs> Elisha was one of the, the, the non-classical uh, prophets, part of a group of traveling prophets. He probably was the most 
respected of them, but he was part of a group and they were paid to come and give their prophecies and make their miracles happen. That was their career. Um, and I think Chris is right that this these stories are often to give status to Elisha so that he be respected as the prophet. Uh, but they didn't have one prophet. They had multiple prophets, but that he was the, the biggest and best of them all. But all through the Old Testament, you have the tradition of arguing with God and questioning. And I don't know how Christians have gotten it so wrong that we take the Old Testament literally because the Jews didn't. I mean, it, it, it's just fairly ridiculous to take it. And a lot of these stories are out of Mesopotamia. You know, they, they, they spoke to the people because they were familiar with these kinds of stories. And did they all happen? I don't think so. Did some of them happen? Yeah, maybe. Uh, was Elisha a man of God, meaning a man who stood between God and the people? Uh, yeah, and, and did he mostly speak to kings, which Elisha makes clear here. The second Kings makes clear. He wasn't the kind of classical prophet that spoke to the people. There are no speeches to the people here. There, there are these, these mostly um, exchanges with kings and the wealthy, which makes that last little story really interesting because the wealthy is saved by a young poor girl. So there's a, there is, there's usually not a message in these stories, really. They're, they're like Chris is, they're building up the prophet. That's what they're doing. But then you get a little one like the one at the end with the, the girl who, who gets the prophet and, and saves the life of the, of the wealthy man. And, and then you get at least a little message that maybe those without much status need to look, uh, need, those with status need to look to those without for lots of things, uh, inspiration, help, uh, opportunities to serve, of course. But anyway, these are, I, I like both of your perspectives. I think they're both there. So I, Suzanne, Suzanne Hannah asks a question here. And since I immediately have a response, I'm, I, I'm gonna bite my tongue and, and, just, and just read it to you, Linda. This, uh, what advice do you have for parents who have a child who is now a professed atheist? Yeah. Love them, love them, love them. <laughs> I mean, you can't coerce your beliefs on them. Um, you're going to have your own inner turmoil, I think. Uh, and it may take a while for you to, to be able to find a sense of peace there. I think it's hard on the parents when their children choose a different way. Um, but they, and maybe it just sounds sappy to love them because you have all this inner angst to work through on your own about how you had something in mind that didn't come to pass and is not going to come to pass. But you need to see that person where they are and for what they bring and hope that they continue to connect with you. Sometimes 
um, when people choose a different way, they can't they can't abide being in the presence of people that remind them of what they've actively chosen not to do. But anybody else have comments or I'm sure there are. I, I, I did, as I said, I have, a, I have a response as well. And it's sort of in line with what Lori Call has just posted in the, in the chat. Um, but I'm gonna put my words and, and Lori can pitch in or not. Um, right out of this lesson, I guess, I, I like, I love the, I love the love them and, and include them and all of that. But I also have found that sometimes, not always, but sometimes that expression of atheism is really, um, I don't believe in, I don't think there is a God like the one you're describing, like the one I heard about in Sunday school. And out of this lesson itself. I mean, if you take the if you take these stories as a rigid one version only, you then get people saying, "Well, I just don't buy it." But so so one response to the professed atheist is um, broaden your thinking. There are there is more in this world to think about and more to investigate and learn about. And it's not just or limited to the way you heard about in Sunday school. Um, that may not be an answer, but it's, it's, um, it's often enough been important that I suggest it. And I, I mean, Laurie's saying in my experience, maturity comes as one releases the black and white definitions we have. Um, that's, I mean, that's what we're doing today, I guess. <laughs> I love a colorful world. <laughs> and uh, Can I add something, Linda, to that? Sure. I think and, as a parent, and you're already adding with that gorgeous quilt <laughs> behind you. Oh, thank you. I think another thing is a parent of two children who have, have uh, don't participate in the faith anymore. It's also let, a letting go of your expectations mm -hmm. of what their lives should be like or what they should think and validating how they view things because again each of us comes to god in our relationships in a completely different way even if we're all attending the same church or we all profess to believe the same faith our individual relationships are completely different and and for me it's just been one of those things where i'm letting my children discover for themselves what their life will be. And if they have a relationship, my daughter said once to me, mom, I still believe in God, but my God's not the same God that you believe in. And I said, okay. And being okay with that and just kind of taking that moment to sit with it and allow them to discover because that's the whole reason we're here is to learn and discover. Thank you. That's I think so something that's beautiful about LDS theology is that we do philosophically have space for them to quote unquote believe in a different God because our God is omniscient, omnipotent. And so we in our understanding of God might not understand a facet that they understand. And we can accept that and give space for it. And it doesn't actually conflict with the core beliefs and teachings. When um, my youngest son was in high school, he was, he did a lot of improv and they, they had a session once where the group was, God might not understand.
uh, where the the group was was working with the concept of a, a interfaith group that all the little actors were in a circle and trying to share their different views of God and theology and and my son my son's role was to to uh, or my son's choice in this improv session was to say how grateful he was about having a um, a place where he wouldn't be judged for his religious beliefs even though they were unusual. And then he confessed that he was a follower of Molech where they uh, sacrificed babies. I'm <laughs> thinking, what? <laughs> I mean, that's very creative. That kind of puts it to the test. How much are you willing to uh, allow your child to see their God is a different way? So, um, but I liked that, that goose of having to think, okay, how broad is your mind? Mine is not that broad. It helps me with a, a son who not only is an atheist, he is um, hateful toward anyone with religious beliefs. And it helps me to admit that I can't rationally prove there is a God. He can't rationally prove there is not a God. My faith in God ultimately comes down to some spiritual experiences that I have had. He obviously hasn't had any like that. Um, it makes it much easier for me. It's, it's not hard to love him at all, but easier for me to see his perspective and not to condemn him for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These are hard lessons we're all learning. And the grace goes both ways. So my children are very understanding of the fact that I still participate in Mormonism. And that's, yeah. you know, that's the thing we don't always talk about. The, the thing I've always heard so much about is, oh, you know, how do we reach out to them? Well, I'm so appreciative that they still reach out to me. <laughs> you know, there's just, it's a, it's a dual relationship. So I, I actually am very grateful for that with my kids. Nice. My daughter, our, our daughter is um, a member of the UCC, United Church of Christ now, and has been essentially since college. And because I joined the Mormon church out of a happy position being a Protestant person, there was no way that I could allow myself to be in any way judgmental of her decision to make a spiritual choice of her own. And in some ways, she and I are more simpatico than a lot of church members and I. Um, and I really, uh, I love what I get from her religious experience. And I love that we are as close as we are. Um, it, it probably took a while, but um, boy, I love who she is and what she does and how she thinks. Other couple of comments. I mean, I could go on about our daughter, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go back to some of the comments here that are in the, in the chat. Um, one, um, I, it ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible. <laughs> um, 
That was in quotes. I don't know what the original is. I'm sure there's a tune to it. <laughs> it's a song. Yeah, it's a song. It ain't necessarily ah. so. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Bruce Mortensen writes, I find it fascinating that I could spend so many years teaching the LDS way and watch so many young people reject their parents' beliefs to follow LDS teaching. And that rejection causes tremendous heartache for those parents. Yeah. And another, um, if truth is wherever we can find it, the truth I find may not be the truth that you find. The truth that any one of us has is limited. I mentioned in my remarks that I, I don't think it's a faith crisis to move from I know, and then off comes your list of things that you were absolutely certain about. I think it's a, uh, a sign of maturity to recognize how much you don't know. Uh, and I think until we do that, until we give up the lust for certainty, I guess, um, God can only work with us in certain ways. And this reminds me actually, Chris, I mean, part of what we've been talking about today are, are miracles and, and how we interpret them. But one of the things, major life stories that you and I share is when you were diagnosed with end-stage cancer in 2007. <sighs> Sorry. Here you are, hale and healthy, <laughs> missing several parts, but it still chokes me up. And I realized that as I look back over my reactions during that, that I, pr I prayed like crazy. I wanted God to absolutely know that what I wanted was for you to survive, but that I was willing to let God do what God needed to do. And uh, thank heaven <laughs> you're here. But I remember the feeling of giving up, giving up expectation, giving up a sense of control of just uh, learning to accept and in gush this incredible sense of, of love, not, I mean, yes, for you, but, but for everyone and for the planets and for the trees and for stop signs that people actually stop at. And I, it just became a sort of giddy spiritual high for me while I was going through the worst passage of my life. And you were, drugged and sleeping for most of it. So, and I, I cherish having that uh, ability to accept love and be willing to give up. Uh, but don't get sick. <laughs> don't, don't, no, more, no more problems. So. But, uh, if I may, let me generalize one point that you're making, but I want to make it a general point. That is, um, I believe that we all have in our adult life, usually sometimes in childhood, but then most, most of us in our adult life, we have things happen that um, where we really, really want our spouse to get better, where we really, really want our father to live and where and it doesn't happen. And something happens that breaks 
that certainty that basically tells us that certain world that you know response to faith response to prayers that miracle doesn't happen and it breaks the certainty and what what you're doing is telling us that doesn't have to be a crisis that doesn't have to be the end of faith mm -hmm. that doesn't that that is something that we can live through and come to a larger um, a larger concept that doesn't include certainty that doesn't include sure you know the mechanical if you pray machine. it will happen the machine but that there is still faith there is it, it doesn't have to be a crisis we can work through that and i that's you know if i'm going to take that message but i'm trying to generalize it here Thank you for sharing that, Linda and Chris. Um, I think this is actually a really great time to, to pause and do the closing hymn. We have people that are really dying to continue to discuss. We can we can linger and discuss afterwards, but I just don't feel like we can top that. So, yeah. Okay. So after the song, then we'll have Molly give a closing prayer, yes. and then we'll those who can linger longer will linger longer. Yeah, exactly. So our, our closing hymn is going to be um, Baba Yetu by the Stellenbosch University Choir. This is a, a Swahili version of the Lord's Prayer. Okay, and I've got to find it now. Okay, well, while you're finding it, I'll introduce Molly, I guess. So Molly will be giving our closing prayer. She's been a board member um, over 20 years, twice board chair. She was an attorney much of her life. Um, she's going to be starting as a gospel doctrine teacher to the high schoolers in her ward soon, where she is in Seattle. Uh, she's a convert and has taught gospel doctrine to adults or teens or been a Relief Society president. Um, what I responded when she first sent this to me is it sounds like you're the type of person I want to be friends with and I wish you lived closer so we could hang out more. Yeah. Okay, whenever you're ready, Chris. That's that fun. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the scriptures and we're grateful for Linda. And we're grateful for her helping us to wade through some of the more difficult parts to understand. We pray, Father, that we might be open to miracles, but that we might be patient and that we might look upon faith, that we might be satisfied with comfort uh, from thy spirit and with the patience that life requires. And we say these things most gratefully in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast. Dialogue Podcast Network.